Chapter Two of the Romance of Excavation by David Masters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Stephen Seidel. Chapter Two The Ruins of Egypt, which tells of men who are using their eyes to bring us back to the glories of the past. Of papyrus, the paper of olden times, and how it was made of bits of pottery worth their weight in gold and how they act as calendars, and the cleverness of native thieves. A little over a century ago, the past of Egypt was concealed from living eyes. The pyramids still stood four square to the sandstorms of the desert, as they had stood for ages. The Sphinx regarded the Nile with the same inscrutable gaze that had puzzled the ancients. Throughout Egypt were mighty ruins, but little was known about them. People used to sit astride their asses and jog along into the stony places to see the relics. They saw merely heaps of stones, buildings grown so old that they had toppled to pieces. There were broken statues and shattered columns lying in the utmost confusion. There were mountains of sand with fragments of masonry protruding. Occasionally, amid the shifting sands, a few columns stood upright, some so strangely shaped that their like was not to be seen elsewhere on the earth. They added to the general mystery of Egypt. The natives were poor, utterly incapable of building on such a gigantic scale. How, then, did the original buildings get there? By whom were they erected, and for what purpose? Most people asked many questions and received different answers. The myths of the natives are as numerous as the broken monuments, but whereas the broken stones are facts, the myths woven round them were often otherwise. Any fanciful story that served to win money from the traveler was repeated in a variety of ways, and any little truth there may have originally been was lost in continued repetition. The ruins, however, could not lie. They said, as plainly as stones can speak, We were fashioned by man in the long ago, and the sun shone on us in our glory just as it shines on us in our decay. Fortunately, all men did not merely look at the ruins and pass on their way voicing their amazement. Some were so fascinated by what they saw that they could not leave it, and these are gradually unfolding to us one of the most romantic stories in the world, a romance besides which the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is but a single chapter. The spoils collected in Egypt during the time of Napoleon turned the attention of scientists to the Nile. Men began to work to see if they could unravel the past from the evidence afforded by the remains. They began to dig, and today in the arid places of the earth are many men toiling like navvies, suffering untold discomforts, living in huts and delving in ruins to add to our knowledge of the past. These are the men who are writing history. They're doing it not with a pen, but with spade and pick. People have eyes, yet they see so little. They're not trained to see. To most men, a rose is only a flower. But to the exceptional man, it is a miracle. For as he gazes at the glorious bloom with its many tinted petals, 
he visualizes the tiny single rose, the common dog rose, from which all roses, in their wondrous diversity of color and shape and size and perfume, have sprung. Many people regard the earthworm as an annoyance which disfigures the lawn, but Darwin saw in it the lowly creature that is helping to keep the earth sweet and clean by removing the decaying leaves, a blind thing that is continually providing the earth with a layer of new soil in which man may plant his seeds and harvest his crops. Countless earthworms are the servants of men. The diggers toiling in the heat of the sun in Egypt, in Mesopotamia and Crete, and other places are blessed with this keen vision. Without it, they would be useless. If the Rosetta Stone to them were just a broken piece of rock, the romance of the past would not appeal to them. They would not possess the imagination which drives them into the lonely places to find traces of many lost civilizations. When they glimpse a ruin, they can close their eyes and see the men quarrying the stones and the masons squaring them and the sculptors carving them. They can see kings consulting their architects and architects giving orders to the masons. They can see the stone blocks being hauled in place and set one upon another. These and many other things they can see. They are using their eyes to benefit the majority of people who cannot see these things for themselves. Unfortunately, the men who were early interested in the past of Egypt had little to guide them, and they sought for written records. They were all papyri mad. So long as they could find papyri and carry them off to their museums, they were content. In the light of our later knowledge, we are wont to blame them, but there may be some excuse for them. The Egyptian papyri are wonderful, quite apart from what is written upon them. They are the gift of the Nile and of Egypt to the world. Almost, they might be called the first sheets of paper ever made. Papyrus nearly 6,000 years old has already been found, and it appears doubtful whether we shall ever be able to trace the name of the first man who thought of using the stem of the papyrus plant in so useful a manner. It seems likely that the discovery may have been due to Egyptian children. If you walk about the English countryside when the bulrushes are flourishing, it is a common sight to see children plucking the rushes and skinning them to make flowers out of the pith. The papyrus plant flourishes in the Nile water where it roots in the mud just as the bulrush roots in the mud of English ponds. It often attains a height of 15 feet or more, and the green stem of the plant grows straight up without any joints from top to bottom. What children do in one country in one age, they are likely to do in all countries in all ages. Human nature is fairly constant, and rushes growing in a river will always attract children. Probably some dark-skinned Egyptian children in the misty ages picked the skin off the papyrus reeds in order to play with the pith, which differs materially from that of the English bulrush. In the course of their childish games, they may have cut the fibrous pith into layers and spread them on a rock, just as children spread out things to play at chops, whereupon the hot sun of Egypt would quickly dry the fragments. Perhaps the father, interested in the games of his children, seized on this curious substance and was struck by its fine texture and smooth surface. Experimenting for himself out of sheer curiosity, 
he may have cut some strips of pith and joined them in a simple manner by pressing the edges with his finger while they were still moist with sap thus making the first sheet of papyrus whatever its origin papyrus in time was made by cutting the pith into thin strips placing the strips so that one edge overlapped another and pressing them all together when they dried the overlapped edges adhered and the result was a continuous sheet of white material on which it was possible to work with a brush and a reed pen the papyrus reed still flourishes in the upper nile as it did in ancient days indeed it has become rather a curse to the country and a few years ago it threatened to choke the river completely it was such a menace owing to its interfering with the flow of water on which the whole life of egypt depends that drastic steps costing a huge sum of money had to be taken to clear the upper reaches steamers slowly ate their way into it for hundreds of miles clearing channels and destroying the sud as it is called the sud which is largely composed of the papyrus on which the ancients relied for their writing materials nowadays the sud is being compressed into blocks and used as fuel so the papyrus is still serving humanity as has been said the early workers who sought for knowledge of old egypt hunted mainly for papyri manuscripts were of undoubted value in throwing light on the past and while the seekers were prepared to recover statues jewels and similar objects they placed the recovery of manuscripts before everything else the fact that they could not read the papyri in those early days when a glimmer of interest in egypt was beginning to filter through to the outside world was no drawback to the hunters the rows of quaint pictures with bird-headed men the natives with mops of black hair and other queer things were attractive in themselves they had a value to the collector for their strange writing alone and those early collectors realized that given the manuscripts some brilliant men would manage to read them some day as young and champollion actually did so those early enthusiasts spent their time hunting tombs digging here digging there and everywhere in their endeavors to locate something that was worth carrying away when they were successful they seized on the mummy cases and eagerly opened them to see if any manuscripts were inside with the mummy in their eagerness they overlooked much they searched haphazardly their knowledge was small and they undoubtedly cast aside many things which they looked upon as so much rubbish trifles which to the scientist of today would light up the past as with a searchlight a square inch of broken pottery is not particularly noticeable in a mound of rock and sand and even if the eye does light on it the hand is seldom prompted to pick it up but there are men so skilled in their knowledge of the pottery of past ages that a fragment may serve to link places thousands of miles apart and thrust the history of mankind backward into the mists of time for several thousands of years a brilliant scientist like professor flinders petrie is able to deduce the most amazing things from a piece of pottery even if it be but a fragment to him the fragment serves the purpose of a calendar it is as though he were picking up a modern calendar on which the year stood boldly out of course the fragment of pottery does not date quite so exactly as that 
but it easily falls within a well-defined period. A glance would enable the famous scientist to say, This is 7,000 years old, and, seeing a different fragment, he would know that it was a great deal older, perhaps 10,000 years old. How much valuable evidence of this sort has been ignorantly destroyed in the past will never be known. In the early days of the last century, and even to within measurable distance of this, men were too intent on the big things to pay attention to the little things that slipped through their fingers. It is the common things that tell us the history of a period, the things that people use and wear. If we recover these fragments of common things, they serve to indicate how the people lived. Thieves, too, have been responsible for the loss of most valuable evidence. The Egyptian natives are born pilferers. They have a natural aptitude for causing things to vanish, and when a discovery has been made, the discoverer has seldom been able to preserve his find in its entirety. There have been cases where the greater part of a find has disappeared in a night, and once it is gone, you might as well seek to find a particular grain of sand in the desert. Statues, vases, jewels, furniture, all have been carried off, and the finders have wakened to discover that their labor has been wasted, and that instead of enriching our knowledge of the world, they have merely enriched a few native thieves. The natives too, often seize the opportunity of digging in places where they know they will not be disturbed. They do not go to the trouble of obtaining a permit to dig. The last thing they desire to do is call the attention of the authorities to their work. So they run the risk and dig surreptitiously. While it is obvious they must waste a lot of energy in conducting these illegal searches, it is also obvious that they are often rewarded by finding objects of value. The things they find, they smuggle to their huts, and in due course sell them to some traveler, who places them in his private collection, where they are as completely lost to sight as if they had never existed. Then there are things that the natives stumble on accidentally. If their find is not portable, they may inform the authorities, but if it is easy to handle, there is little prospect of their discovery becoming known. No one has the faintest idea how much material has been lost in these ways. Its scientific value must be incalculable. End of chapter 2